Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. If I could get the world to stop snacking, um, I think we would dramatic, regardless of diet, anything else, um, I, we would see a huge, huge reduction. And I know a lot of people think that's so silly, but I've seen it. I've seen it in tens of thousands of people, uh, the power of just not snacking, regardless of their diet um, and the total calories consumed in this or that. And the snacking, that has more of a, a powerful impact. Um, so really focusing on that and that will enable you to do some base intermittent fasting, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And that over the long term has profound health benefits too. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Megan Ramos. She's a fasting expert and program director at The Fasting Method. We discussed her health journey from overcoming diabetes, how to counteract hyperinsulinemia, along with the differences between calorie restriction and fasting, keys to not snacking, differences between men and women when it comes to fasting, also, what breaks a fast? Lastly, we discussed her one tip to get your body back to what it once was. This was a great interview with Megan. She's very knowledgeable around fasting and what it takes to get started and to maintain it. And I know you'll enjoy this interview. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have a special guest uh, from the Fasting Method, uh, Megan Ramos. Welcome. Hey. hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy you're finally able to connect. <laughs> I know. It took a little while, but we made it happen, right? Yeah, my life's been crazy. We relocated from Toronto to San Francisco. Mm. Um, I've got teammates that span most of them in, are in Toronto, but we've got Portugal and Zurich, oh, and wow. I'm working all of the hours of the day right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's been tough to coordinate anything <laughs> these days. Yeah, all the time zones. It's like ugh, trying to schedule stuff, right? I'm terrible at time zone math. I just said, uh, everybody needs to convert to me if you want me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I'm glad we did finally connect. Um, maybe, you know, before we get into uh, a little bit more about fasting and this and that, how, what was your path? How did your path uh, into fasting or into the fasting method and working with Dr. Jason Fung and things like that? How did that, how did that occur? Yeah, I've been working with Jason since I was 15. Oh. I'll be 37 in a few months. Um, so a long time. When I was young, I had a really uh, strong desire to get into preventative medicine. Mm. And due to a family connection, I had a really great opportunity to get in on some interesting research at a young age. Uh, so I this kidney clinic that Jason was a young nephrologist at really focused a lot on preventative medicine for kidney disease. And that really resonated with me. So I started doing research there. So that's how I started working with them. And I just fell in love, you know, with everything we were doing. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't really effective. Um, but uh, because there's so much education, uh, we really got to know the patients. We had lots of appointments with them. 
they were longer appointments. I got into some pretty heavy prospective research at the program, the clinic, and st stuck there throughout my education. And then in my mid twenties, I realized like, oh my gosh, like everything we're doing is not helping. Mm. And it became so depressing. And I thought, okay, like, do you really want to go back to school and study medicine at this point or cut your losses? If you can't help people, maybe just go to law school, like the rest of your family. And so I, I took a year off from school and trying to figure things out. And I thought, oh, also my family history is like terrible for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. My grandmother, severe dementia at that point from diabetes. And I thought, okay, like Megan, you're young. You've already got these metabolic issues. Like I already had fatty liver. I was diagnosed when I was 12. I already had PCOS when I was 14. Like get your health together. Um, so I took a year. I'm going to write my LSATs. I'm going to um, eat seven times a day. I'm going to really force myself to eat all of that fruit. I'm going to get a personal trainer and do all of those things. And the end result was being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at 27. Um, and gaining a ton of weight, uh, doing all of those things. Uh, around the same time, uh, Jason was sort of going through his own transformation. Like, geez, all we're doing is giving these patients bad news. Because mm -hmm. if you're diabetic, and or if you have out of controlled blood pressure from obesity or insulin resistance, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. The kidneys are going to fail. The, there's no way around it. So as a kidney specialist, like, what can you do? Nothing other than to say, okay, you know, we'll just keep monitoring it. Like it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible position for a doctor who really just wants to help people to be in and be out of control. So he had looked into low carb diets and, you know, and you went back and sort of took a look at what had happened with the Atkins phenomenon, sort of the original lower carb, you know, uh, fads diet you know, what what were the flaws and you know why why isn't the whole world doing that you know right now um why didn't it always reverse type 2 diabetes and uh he really got into focusing on insulin resistance and the mechanisms behind it and became interested in fasting actually if fasting came up during a casual conversation but then we actually had a lot of experience in the clinic with people fasting when we thought about it, because we're the, from the most diverse city in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and we worked in the most diverse niche of that city. Mm -hmm. So there's always people fasting for religious periods uh, or religious times. We had Hindus who would fast a couple times a week and we, their medications would have to be adjusted for those fasting days. We had people participating in Ramadan. Ramadan's going on right now. And that's 30 days where you're on, you know, not eating, but like when the sun is up, you only eat after it sets and before it rises. And all these people, we'd have to adjust their medication down because the sugars would be down, their blood pressure would be down. No one died from doing it. In fact, a lot of the times they got better during Ramadan. And then when they started eating again, that's when it all went down the toilet. Right. So um, Jason, you know, said, well, you know, you could try low carb or, or fasting. And uh, low carb just, it was such a bust for me. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm an 84 baby. Like I grew up on Domino's delivery and happy meals. And I didn't learn how to do anything in the kitchen other than microwave something or boil water for pasta. <laughs> so to, to cook 
food, real foods. It was terrifying. Um, and I failed at that. So I thought, well, maybe it's just easier not to eat. And within six months, I lost the weight. I reversed the diabetes, the PCOS, the fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, we can help people. Um, we can act like what yeah. I wanted to do my whole life since a kid was to help people. And like, wow, we can actually do that. So Jason and I started fasting patients at our clinic. And then he wrote a couple of books that became popular and we drew a lot of international attention. We had a two-year wait list for the clinic, yeah. um, realized we had to migrate online and make it more scalable. So we do it, started doing online fasting coaching and health coaching. And then we created an online program where we could do more group coaching and classes uh, and group education that way, uh, which has been really great. So you know, we're able to, we've served people in you know, over a dozen different countries, um, which is, is fantastic. We're able to get the knowledge out there on fasting. And it's just so cool. You know, earlier today I had a class. Uh, I lead these weekly group fasting challenges and we do a daily check-in mm. and we have people off of all their blood pressure medications, you know, hit the, the, their high school weight um, and be off all their diabetic medications, getting that hemoglobin A1C of 4.8%, you know, when it came from 13, uh, like my days are filled hearing about all of these great stories. And so it's just so rewarding. Yeah. No, I love that. And um, I know if you don't know my story, I actually learned about fasting through a client of mine who just was like pre-diabetic. She tried everything and then she got into fasting and started doing some extended fasts. And it just had such an impact, profound impact on her life. I was like, wow, I got to look into this. And this was probably, I don't know, five, six years ago. Um, so that sort of led me down to learning about fasting for myself. And yeah, that's why I love talking about it. And I love sharing it. And it's great that you guys have been able to spread it, you know, worldwide because you're not, I always say like the mainstream big food and big pharma or whatever, they're not going to spread it for one who, you know, no one really makes money when you fast, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, will it go mainstream? I mean, I think it's got a lot of steam right now with organizations like yourself and just even podcasting alone has sort of spread it out there as much as possible. It's been really wild. Um, yeah. We started uh, this, uh, this August will actually be my 10 year anniversary um, from my diabetes diagnosis and starting fasting. But we started in June, June 5th, 2012. Um, I was actually coming home from a European trip thinking that all of our superiors had shot our fasting program idea down mm -hmm. just to check my airport when I was in or check my airport check my email I was in Paris for the first time in three weeks and realizing that the day after I got home we were starting a fasting ticket they had finally surrendered and I was like great <laughs> I have to create a program on the airplane home from Paris mm -hmm. um and uh, so we launched then everybody thought we were nuts Every, like we would get doctors coming in yelling at us what are you doing um but we would convert them as they saw like you saw with your your client that they, they get better um and now i remember i was actually in orlando was at my mother-in-law's home in orlando on january 1st 2018 
and it was New Year's morning. Um, she was watching, you know, Good Morning America, Good Morning Orlando, whatever those shows are. And she screamed, Megan. And uh, I thought she was dying or something. I'm like, come running. And she's like, look, she's like, she flipped through like three different stations. She said, they're all talking about how intermittent fasting is the dietary trend, which that always makes me laugh. But it's a dietary trend of 2018. And she's right. like, look, look, guys, you guys are doing, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> right, right. Here. It, right. It's finally on like the Today Show or whatever, <laughs> yeah. where they start talking about it. What would you say, um, what would you say the hormonal differences are between like, this is a question that comes up fasting and like calorie restriction. Um, what would you say the biggest differences are between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was just giving a lesson on this today <laughs> oh, good. Um, because it, there's, it's totally different. When you get into the fasting state, you activate our sympathetic nervous system. It's our flight or fight nervous system. Um, but there's, you know, it, dosage makes the poison with everything in life. So if you're in an extremely threatening situation and you get like a wild, you know, activation of this uh, sympathetic nervous system and you get chronically stuck there. Um, when you get chronically stuck there, that's not good, but having it mildly activated for periods of time uh, that builds up resilience in the system. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. You do want to go through periods of like more lower grade stress Stress. intermittently. It, It helps makes us, it helps us thrive. So when you're doing this intermittent fasting, you are getting this low activation of the the sympathetic nervous system. And when that happens, you produce these counter-regulatory hormones. And, you know, I I say it's like activating the fasting state, turning it on, you know, being the difference uh, here between calorie restriction. You get this activation and you get the production of noradrenaline, which helps you not just burn body fat, but maintain your resting metabolic rate. You get this human growth hormone production. And you don't grow, you don't become the Hulk when you're fasting, but it really helps you protect your lean mass, grow lean mass. We see women all of the time reverse the osteoporosis or improve it dramatically, or people be able to, you know, gain lean mass, especially as they're getting older when they want to not be losing it and need to be more proactive about it. So you get these great hormones that are produced. You get a little bit of cortisol production that helps supply your body with glucose that it does need in low quantities during a fasting state and making it feel good. So you get this, these hormones, these counter-regulatory hormones. You don't get activation of that in the calorie restriction state. And we talk about calorie restriction, you know, this is an example I've used forever. And unfortunately, I think um, us here in North America and throughout the world are experiencing it greater than ever. Mm. But um, right now, but say, say you own your own business and you're struggling financially because of a tough time and you had to reduce your take-home pay by 30% in order to preserve your business. Um, You know, when you first start adjusting your budget, you're going to be overspending. You're not going to be used to that. So you're going to accumulate some debt. But over time, you learn how to save. You learn how to budget. So you might take more public transit. You might downsize. You might buy what's on sale at the grocery store versus, you know, what you feel like buying. You might get a Netflix subscription instead of going and paying $100 for the family to see a movie. Um, So you make costs and you adapt to your new budget. 
Um, And Mm. when you're doing calorie restriction diets, that's exactly what happens. You know, you give yourself a new calorie budget every day. And at first you're overspending, but over time your body adapts to the new budget and it slows down spending cognitively in your reproductive system, your cardiovascular respiratory system, and everything slows down a bit. You don't see that weight loss and you have your body performing suboptimally and then you get into more of a stressed out state, more likely to gain weight and revert to eating unhealthy foods. Mm. But with fasting, you know, because of this activation you know, of these counter-regulatory hormones or the sympathetic nervous system, like you're supplying your body with fuel because you're getting those counter-regulatory hormones. And so when you actually, there's been a ton of great uh, randomized control trials produced since 2016, um, just showing this and showing the benefits of this when you compare alternate daily fasting to calorie restriction fasting. So the first RCT I think came out in 2016, it looked at, alternate daily fasters versus those who did a 400 calorie a day reduction mm-hmm. without changing their, their diets. And on the alternate daily fasting, they just consumed water, zero, zero caloric intake. Mm-hmm. And they monitored them over the course of 32 weeks. And you know, we saw with the resting metabolic rate um, that there was like no clinically significant reduction in uh, RMR amongst the alternate daily fasting groups, but there was a clinically significant reduction in the calorie restriction group. Um, so, you know, we do get these, our body does preserve our resting metabolic rate because of the activation of these counter-regulatory hormones. So it's being able to activate that hormone cascade that really separates fasting from calorie restriction diets. Right. It's almost like a switch, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to just eating small meals throughout the day, you're always in that fed state and you're not able to sort of use, uh, you know, your, your fat stores, um, cause you need that insulin low to actually, uh, get into, you know, those fat stores to use that for energy eventually. Right. Yeah. And there's something else too, that I think so many people don't think about. And I think it's, it's also just cause it keeps the science simple, perhaps, um, you know, we understand that there's a greater understanding, at least uh, in the, amongst the lay population, the medical population, that you know, this hyperinsulinemia and this high levels of insulin is what drives insulin resistance. So if you have high, too much insulin in the body, don't add more insulin to the body. So this is where low carb diets have really gained a lot of popularity. Mm-hmm. It's like, so if you you have a fire, you don't put gasoline on it. So if you have too much insulin in the body, well, eat a diet that's low in carbohydrates, higher in healthy natural fats, because you're not going to be adding more fuel to the fire. But once you already have insulin resistance too, the insulin resistance itself perpetuates insulin to be secreted by the body. Mm -hmm. So the diet doesn't really address that. And then we're just surrounded by food. Like if we have it, it's 10 feet away from us at all times. We have apps that can deliver it to our front door in like 15 to 30 minutes, um, depending on the time of day. Um, So we're chronically eating. And so what happens with this is that the chronic stimulus of insulin, well, that also leads to insulin resistance. So you might be thinking, well, it's just a handful of nuts here, a handful of almonds there, some cheese here, or whatever, whatever your 
your real food choices, depending on your dietary restrictions, um, that constant stimulus, that's problematic. So we talk about this door scenario, right? Everybody's working from home. So we're getting all these weird interruptions. And so imagine you're working away, you're trying to focus on a big project and you get a thousand people knocking at your front door. Like, you know that that's not good and you're gonna be pushing your sofa against the door to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it's annoying, it's scary, <laughs> it's frustrating. Um, so that's kind of like eating that big bowl of pasta, you know, and this like having the body flooded with insulin um, because you're getting your front lawns flooded with people trying to get in um, <laughs> to your house if you like in your house to the cell in your door to the insulin receptor. <laughs> but what happens is like, imagine you had a visitor every 30 to 60 minutes from 6am till midnight knocking at your door. Like that ends up being a lot of visitors and being very disruptive and driving resistance towards you wanting to answer the door. So it's really about the meal timing, giving your body that chance to not be bombarded with insulin at all hours of the day and actually fasting for a period of time where you're going to suppress your insulin levels so much other than what you need for physiological you know, survival for that day. That will help break the cycle of insulin resistance. So this is why what I see now is a greater acceptance for fasting, uh, greater acceptance for real food diets and lower carbohydrate diets, which is great. But, you know, just because of the convenience of food and how we're just sort of wired to eat um, these days, it's difficult for people not to snack. So we have so many people that will come and they'll say, you know, Megan, I've lost 50 of that 80 pounds. Why can't I lose that last 30 pounds? Am I forever broken? Or, you know, I've come off of my diabetic meds and my A1C is 6.8. It's better than 8.8. Why can't it be 4.8? You know, why can't I get there? And it's not necessarily the foods. And it looks like many of them have even addressed food sensitivities like nuts and dairy. Um, but they're not getting there. And soon as we cut out the snacking, uh, it's not about eating less food. You know, if you eat that food, but eat it with your meal, you know, don't eat your three o'clock snack at three o'clock, eat it with your lunch or eat it with your dinner uh, on your eating days. And this just doing that, it's not about eating less necessarily, it's about eating less often. And then that last 30 pounds goes that A1C is now optimal and it, meal timing. So people often forget that second pathway to insulin resistance. And that's really important to address. Yeah, no, I love that. So essentially, um, if someone has plateaued, uh, they should just cut out snacking. <laughs> that would be a good way, right? Yeah. Uh, if I had my way, the whole world would stop snacking. I think if we just stopped snacking and went back to how- Three meals a day, even three yeah. meals a day, right? Yeah. Yeah, huge improvement which used to be the norm in the seventies, right? <laughs> yeah. I remember telling my grandmother when I started fasting, my whole family thought I was nuts. I thought my father was going to try to get power of attorney over my health because he oh. thought I developed an eating disorder. Mm. Luckily he got busy with work and forgot about me. But I remember just going to confide in my grandmother and she said to me, Megan, I was never sick and I was never fat, you know, until we started eating all of the time. And she said, you know, potato chips were for holidays, cookies were for Christmas. And, right. but then they became a thing that was all of the time. And she said, your father, when he lived with me, he wasn't allowed to eat before dinner because he'd spoil his appetite. And if he wanted to eat after dinner, that meant he didn't eat enough broccoli. Um, so, and then he moved out and now he's 
vet and diabetic. <laughs> so um, there's, it's just about going back to these simple basics can make a huge change in our lives. Yeah, no, it, it comes all full circle, right? Um, I'm sure you get this question. I know you've written some stuff on it. I, I've gotten it uh, over the last few months is the difference between men and women. And do you have a different protocol um, when you're when you're working with a woman as opposed to a man? Yeah, I actually just finished a manuscript on women and fasting. Um, so it'll be out next year. Mm. Um, when it comes to women and men, you have to sort of take into a, a couple situations. So for working with a woman who's, you know, done childbearing, um, or, you know, maybe trying to look, lose that baby weight that they never got to lose, had gestational diabetes, worried about perimenopause, trying to get the weight off before that time happens, or even women going through menopause or postmenopause. Um, you know, we really don't approach their fasting any different than men at any age uh, do find that these women need to fast a bit longer uh, than perhaps our male counterparts. So often you'll get a man with mild to moderate insulin resistance. He's got, you know, that, that beer, a bit of a beer belly, that sympathy weight he gained when his wife was pregnant <laughs> that he wants <laughs> to lose. Um, and they do very well doing maybe more shorter intermittent fasts, like 24 hours, or even make great headway doing 16 or 18 hours if they're not diabetic or very diabetic. Mm. Um, but women mostly, I mean, we're combating other issues at that age. We're combating low progesterone, we're uh, combating low estrogen levels. Um, you know, also thyroid issues are a lot more prevalent in females. And a lot of it is due to cellular inflammation or autoimmune. Um, and it's never really adequately addressed by the medical community. So the longer fasts for them result in greater reduction in inflammation and help with those issues that do generate more fat loss. I mean, if you can address the hypothyroidism, then you're going to, uh, have one less barrier towards fat loss. Now with women who are childbearing age and are still, you know, having monthly cycles, um, there are certain times of the month where it's easier to fast than others. So women go through these cycles of estrogen predominance versus progesterone predominance. So the first 14 days of our cycle, estrogen's the more dominant sex hormone and estrogen's actually an appetite suppressing hormone. Mm -hmm. um, so women find during this time leading up to ovulation that, hey, like fasting's easy. They don't even think about food. You know, this is, this is great. Then ovulation happens and ovulation, like obviously your body wants to produce life. So you're gonna be right. more hungry. You're gonna be more ravenous. So this is a difficult time. And then when you enter sort of that post-ovulation, that luteal phase, the last 14 days of your cycle, progesterone's an appetite-driving hormone. Uh, testosterone, while not like off the charts, is, is more dominant as well, which is also an appetite-driving hormone. Mm. So a lot of women of childbearing age, you know, really struggle at certain times of the month and they think that they're broken. And it's like, no, like let's, you know, look at your cycles, even if they're uh, irregular and let's try to identify some of these patterns and when it's easier, especially at the start of your cycle, you know, we make more headway doing more longer intermittent fasts or extended fasts. And then towards your, your period, you know, the second half of your cycle, we're looking at more 
time restricted eating, shorter periods of intermittent fasting, spending that time working on food quality. Mm-hmm. And then for women who are looking to conceive, you know, that week before the cycle, we tend to keep, you know, uh, we don't, uh, more mTOR, you know, less fasting during that period of time if, if they're looking um, to have babies. And that just sort of helps from a, a progesterone uh, level as well, because that will help the we don't want to interfere with the progesterone levels at that stage because it really helps ensure that the egg can properly be fertilized and then attach uh, and grow a baby. So we don't want, we want more, more mTOR during that time rather than less. Right. So just so people know more mTOR, um, that would be, would you put them a little bit more on a higher protein uh, diet um, to stimulate that? Yeah, yeah. And even if it's a time for a little bit of real food carb cycling, sometimes we'll do in in certain cases as well. So when we do real, real food carb cycling for us, it's mostly root vegetables, and it's still small, smaller portions, you're still making sure that you're, you're adding certain, you're having that, say, if it's a potato or a root vegetable, having it, you're making sure you're eating protein with it, um, and having like, if you have potatoes, put vinegar on them. Um, so really making sure that you're just not, we, we talk about like you can eat carbs naked or you can eat them dressed and not necessarily like you yourself, um, but the carbohydrates. So making sure that you're just not going to, to have potatoes on their own. So some women we find definitely do need to have a little bit of carb cycling during that week if they're predominantly doing a very low carbohydrate diet not all women but some some women actually thrive better on especially more animal fats and animal proteins during that time yeah no that makes sense and in putting vinegar on a potato i'm assuming that just blunts the insulin response is that correct yeah yeah it just helps a bit i mean you're still getting the same amount of sugar in your body at the end of the day but you're just sort of blunting the surge Okay. And, um, when you're doing fasting protocols, are you, what's, what constitutes, uh, I know this is probably a common question, breaking a fast and, uh, what doesn't. Yeah. So we are really, really focused on insulin resistance, uh, at the fasting method. Um, so when we talk about what you can and can't have during a fast, we're really trying to focus in on what isn't, going to have no next to no insulin response in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have things like water, tea, I'm a green tea uh, junkie to almost my detriment, probably. <laughs> is, that, is that peak tea? Actually, you know, oh. it, it is. I'll be okay. honest. Uh, and I'll let you know that they send it to me. <laughs> Not I, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially now that I'm here, they, they sent me a nice welcome to California package, but yeah, so you have tea, green tea in general, um, is, is great coffee, uh, coffee, black black coffee, black coffee, black coffee can sometimes in some people be an appetite stimulant. I find some people are very, very sensitive to the caffeine, Mm. uh, and see a cortisol reaction, um, matcha tea, like these fluids. So in addition to water, tea, and coffee. Um, and then depending on people, sometimes uh, 
struggle to get in adequate electrolytes when they're fasting, especially when they're doing more longer intermittent or extended fasts. And at the start, um, you know, Jason and I, our team, we always you know, talk about bone broth as one way to help because bone broth is, you can salt it. It's appropriate to add salt to broth. Most people don't think that's weird. Whereas drinking salty water is kind of weird mm. um, in society. Um, but then, you know, the bone broth is really just a training wheel. And if people find that they need that sodium support, which almost always they do, if they continue to do these longer fasts, then uh, like a sugar-free pickle juice, uh, pickle brine, or sometimes people have olive mm. brine during their fasts. And that's really effective. Um, I'm, this will be my first summer in California, but in Toronto, I mean, we're 100, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, we mm. got the East Coast humidity in the winter or sorry, in the summer. So like, I don't want to be drinking anything hot. Uh, and then you're also sweating. And when you have extreme changes in seasons, it can cause hydration issues. So I would just guzzle uh, pickle juice in, in July and August back home. And so that's, that's a common fasting fluid that we recommend in our community as well. So when it comes to, you know, breaking the fast, we use certain things like training wheels. It's okay to have a little bit of fat just to help you transition. Mm -hmm. It's okay to have the bone broth to help you transition. Um, but those are things that you really want to look at as training wheels. It's, a, it's cool to be a toddler and have them, but you don't want to be showing up to your first day at middle school, you know, with training wheels. They're not mm -hmm. going to be perceived as the cool kid on the block. Uh, so if you need them, use them. If you don't, then then don't. And so once you start getting into those things that um, have more of an insulin impact, you, you want to avoid them. You want to cut them out. Right. Cause a lot of times, you know, you hear a lot with the coffee and adding fat, you know, MCT oil, things like that. Sometimes, you know, even though that does, might not cause that much of an insulin response, it could sort of spur on some, some hunger, um, which could sort of lead you down the wrong road. Yeah. And when you're fasting, especially for say for fat loss too, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're having a bulletproof coffee and I think a bulletproof coffee, you're trying to get in an extra meal on an eating day and you look at it as a meal, that's okay. Or if you're using it as to transition, I got it. I came, I was someone that ate 12 times a day, trying to fast. Like sometimes right. you need these bridging steps and I support that. Right. Um, but when you drink a bulletproof coffee, I mean that on a fasting day, that's like four to six hours of you not being in a fast like your body's fueling off of the fat because there's so much fat in the, like a bulletproof coffee, three, four tablespoons of fat. Right. Um, and you really want to be getting to a place where you're starting to fuel off of your own fat stores. Uh, so uh, that's what's going to, you know, empty your fat stores, help you lose the body fat, help you lower the insulin levels and really achieve sustainable weight loss and improve your metabolic health. So it's just counterproductive. I mean, again, it's a good as a training wheel, but that's all it should be just to help you get more acclimated to the situation of being in a fasted state. Yeah. And, um, when you work with someone, uh, as far as looking at what they're eating, um, do you, what do you address there? And as some, sort of like the big pillars, as far as when they're, what they're eating, um, and then do you address that first or do you first address, well, let's just get you into a fasting mode and then we'll, 
then we'll touch on what you're eating. That's a good question. The chicken <laughs> or the egg, which comes first? Yeah, Cause I get that if, question. Yeah. <laughs> if you definitely like, if you're not eating a lot of sugar and processed and refined junk and all of that stuff, of course, fasting is going to be a lot easier for you yeah. uh, to do. Um, Jason and I at our clinic in Toronto, which really spawned like this whole beast that we've created, which it's phenomenal. Um, our patients we're not in a position to necessarily always eat very well. There was huge um, socioeconomic gaps in the people mm. that came to see us. I mean, Toronto is as expensive as New York City to live in. And it, if you're in the city, you don't have a driver's license, it, you can't go to suburbs or to farmer's markets. I mean, cauliflower is 10 bucks a head. So we'd have these people on disability with amputations in wheelchairs. They've lost their driver's license. Like it was what it was in terms of their diet. Pass is cheap. Bryce is cheap. Like that's, that's what it was. Um, so we would have to get them to fast. And once they started fasting, like the first couple of weeks were, were tough, especially when they're feeding the way that they were. Um, so we try to do as best as we could with their diets, but after once, if we could power them through those first two weeks, and fortunately this population had this deep, like, I mean, they're risking losing another foot, like, or, or losing their foot. Like they had a huge motivation to get through those first couple of weeks. So then it became easier. And then over the time, the cost savings helped them buy better quality food, which was is so wonderful to hear them come in and say, Megan, I could afford to buy like my first piece of steak. Like uh, I haven't had a steak in like six years. Mm. So you don't necessarily have to have this picture perfect diet to start fasting. I went from saying, okay, Megan, just don't eat like garbage once a week to don't eat like garbage once a month and maybe just quarterly. And now it's been like, I'm, I'm, really great place with my diet for the last you know, four or five years. And that's fantastic. Uh, but it's a process. The diet is often a process. So you need to learn how to fast around it. Now, in terms of dietary pillars, I mean, we are not agnostic about diets. And to be quite frank, like I've I have seen all diets across the real food spectrum, mm. um, the whole spectrum um, save people's lives, uh, very unique to, to individuals own physiology. And you've got to learn just to not put your patients in a box and to work with work with them. So we really, you know, real whole foods, really prioritizing natural healthy fats, seeing how the individual responds and like tailoring their diet that way, but real whole foods in the most primal sense possible. Um, you know, that's where we strive for. You don't find keto bread in my house. You don't find that type of stuff very rarely. Um, and can you use those items to help you acclimate? Sure. Um, but we really try to strive for eating and more of a, regardless of it's more animals or it's more plants, um, eating and more of that real food and that, or that primal, um, state of the food. And that's really where we are, our baseline fundamentals are, are sprout from, you know, when it comes to giving nutritional advice. Yeah. And something that gets underlooked, uh, overlooked with the garden fasting is, you know, the flexibility of doing it and then saving money. 
like you, you never really hear people talk about that, but yeah, you, you make a good point, um, that, um, you know, you cut a meal out and over time that, that adds up. <laughs> it's huge savings. I actually went back through some, some old receipts. My mother's a retired accountant. So I've learned from like the age of two that you always save your receipts for everything. Mm -hmm. So I went through some old shoe boxes. They're like, what I spent on diet soda, what I spent on pretzels, like just those two foods, <laughs> two oh food God. categories alone. Like the savings is wild. We actually, I had a mother, she was a single mom. Um, she was widowed. Uh, her and her son, super stressed, you know, working around the clock. And every time she fasted and didn't have a meal, she actually took a few dollars and put it in a jar. And she was going to use that to enable her and her son to actually go on vacations, something that they could never afford to do. Mm. Because she said, you know, all it's all business, like, there's no fun, no time for play. And she thought her kid was growing up to really resent her. Um, so within a few months, she had enough say for them to go to a nice resort uh, mm. in the Dominican. And so she just kept doing that, right? Mm. She said, okay, I would have spent maybe $5 on this meal or, you know, this she had, it was a few bucks. It wasn't ever anything, but whenever she fasted, that was her motivation to fast oh, wow. and to skip her meal. And they went on all these great trips, like over the few years that she was in the clinic. And it was it had, like, so all of these benefits spill into your life in so many other ways that you wouldn't even think of. And it's just really cool to hear all these stories for me. Yeah, that's a great story because she's getting trying getting her health on the right track and she's saving money to sort of uh, take her family to, you know, a nice place. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's a great story. Um, a few more things. I mean, we could talk for hours on fasting. I could, <laughs> at least I'm sure you could. Um, what about, um, I know Dr. Jason Fung just came out with cancer code book. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some maybe takeaways from that, um, that could impact people maybe that have cancer or, you know, are going down that road? Yeah. So cancer code, I know is a serious labor of love for Jason and yeah. we d definitely towards uh, now our, our whole stuff, everything's online, but we've um, started taking in a lot more cancer patients towards the, the end of our clinic there pre COVID days. And um, it's just so important to remember that so many of these cancers are metabolically driven mm. uh, and they are, they result from insulin and insulin causes growth in the body and growth as an adult is rarely a good thing. Mm. Um, we don't want growth. And so when we're just muscle growth, just muscle, just muscle growth, <laughs> you know, good bone density, right. um, uh, brain cells, but we don't, <laughs> we right. don't want, uh, we don't want uh, growth is usually detrimental to us. So insulin can cause that and cause causes growth and, and leads to cancer. So most of these cancers that we're struggling with, a lot of them are metabolic related in nature mm. and having being diet is a profound effect. So, you know, Jason really goes into the cancer code about the impact of sugar and insulin and really how it drives so many of these metabolic cancers. And if you can control that, the, the positive impacts that you have. And one thing that always blew my mind um, was a PET scan. So a PET scan is where this is a scan that you have um, to, you know, see where your cancer is, how aggressive it is. And in order to visualize the cancer, they need to excite the cancer. 
So what they do to excite the cancer is to give you glucose, to fill you up with glucose, to get the cancer excited, to get it, you know, moving and grooving in the body so they can visualize it. Hmm. Um, And then for, for the medical community, the mainstream medical community to not acknowledge that there's a relationship between nutrition, especially sugar and cancer is just kind of mind blowing. Like this is how you assess it. Like, what do you mean there's no relationship there? It's really kind of bizarre. So cancer code really sort of breaks down about this whole metabolic pathway to, uh, to cancers and how we, you know, can really make a huge, uh, risk reduction, you know, in these metabolic cancers by addressing our sugar intake and our insulin levels and hyperinsulinemia in general through diet. Wow. Yeah, that is, that is crazy. And, um, I read his first book. Um, Oh God, what now I'm drawing a blank. What was his first book? Um, the obesity code. He's got like 10 of them. (laughs) And, and, and you have a book, right? Life in the fasting lane. Yeah, we wrote, it's, it's different than the other books. Um, Jason and I wrote it with our good friend, Eve Mayer. Mm. Um, Eve's a hysterical Texan uh, from uh-huh. Dallas. Uh, <laughs> very successful uh, force to be reckoned with. Um, mm. She's a digital marketing guru. Um, oh. She's built empires, um, but can never figure out how to lose weight. She spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, had uh, three different rounds of different types of bariatric surgeries nothing and a friend actually gave her a copy of the obesity code and said to fast and she read it on an airplane and said that she was fasting out of spite uh to prove that it was wrong because she's like i've done everything i spent a quarter of a million dollars like Mm -hmm. nothing nothing um i've i've gone to food addiction retreats everything nothing um and well she lost fat and, and Eve, she's hilarious. She's like, I'm hot, you know, like I'm the hottest <laughs> I've been. Um, so she emailed Jason and, uh, and I, and she's like, listen, I'm coming to Toronto, whether you guys like it or not. And uh, I, I need to see you people. Um, so we did, <laughs> we had lunch with her. I admit I was a little bit like, who is this crazy, crazy lady? Um, mm-hmm. But instantly fell in love with her. Her story was so so deep and we realized that it really like we talk about all of this stuff but there are you know emotional complexities that come along with it and I I remember having a talk with a colleague of mine we're in Zurich at a like a health conference and he's like what's was like, how do you even, you know, have a, like, what's your business? Like, you just tell people not to eat, like, just don't eat, drink water, take some salt, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot, you know, uh, especially uh, men and women, um, you know, we go through a lot over the years. So Eve's story and journey, we just thought it was impor- important to address that whole behavioral mindset uh, side that goes with it. And yeah. um, so Eve tells her story, and Jason and I go in and explain why what she did didn't work from a scientific perspective, why it did work, you know, what the practical tools were that she used to get her results. Mm. So, I mean, it's not this really deep uh, medical dive, a scientific dive like the, some of the other books, but right. I think it addresses something that's often neglected. Yeah, that's great. I'll have to check that out. And, um, um, my final question to you would be, and I ask all my guests this, would be is what would be, I think I know your answer, but maybe uh, what would be your one tip for, you know, a middle-aged man or woman to get their body back 
to what it once was like 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would, yeah, no snacking. Absolutely okay. nice. do not snack. I don't know if that's what you're going to guess, but if I could get the world to stop snacking, um, I think we would dramatic, regardless of diet, anything else, um, I we would see a huge, huge reduction. And I know a lot of people think that's so silly, but I've seen it. I've seen it in tens of thousands of people, uh, the power of just not stacking, regardless of their diet um, and the total calories consumed in this or that. And the snacking, that has more of a, a powerful impact. Um, so really focusing on that, and that will enable you to do some base intermittent fasting, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And that over the long term has profound health benefits too. And, and just, just to piggyback off that, to avoid snacking, what would, what do you recommend? Would you say like replace it with something, maybe like tea, you know, when you start to get those hunger cues and things like that, to, to try to get out of that cycle? Yeah. yeah. Herbal teas, green teas are great. Um, decaffeinated coffee, if you can tolerate the caffeine and that, um, just even minty water, mint's such a great appetite suppressant or adding a teaspoon of, uh, apple cider vinegar. The acetic acid is a great app uh, appetite suppressant in that. So finding these other things, you know, my, I have my few different teas that I drink throughout that my morning, my afternoon, my evening mint tea, um, and these become new rituals uh, and, and that also there are healthy rituals too there are great benefits from from consuming these so those are those type of habits are what we're really looking to improve upon um, when we talk about snacking so don't just try to tough it out there but enjoy a nice cup of tea yeah sparkling water I love to use that as well I just take take your mind somewhere else, right? Stay busy, maybe go for a walk. <laughs> Self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Something just to take your mind. I always find the easiest way to fast is just to keep your mind busy by doing something else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can uh, totally ride out those hunger waves by distraction because it's true. The hunger does come in waves. So, I mean, if you're just flopped on the couch, uh, and inside of the kitchen, you're going to want to eat. But if you say, okay, I'm going to go up, I'm going to do some gardening, I'm going to walk the dogs, uh, I'm going to organize the sock drawer, mm -hmm. uh, do some laundry, uh, the, all of that stuff will take your mind off of it. And the next thing you know, the hunger wave will be gone. Will be gone. Yeah, I love that. Well, Megan, this was great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it all. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Hey, Get Lean, Eat Clean Nation. Are you a man between the ages of 40 and 60 years old looking to lose inches around your waist, have significantly more energy throughout the day, and gain muscle, all while minimizing the risk of injuries? Well, I'm looking for three to five people to work one-on-one -on -one with in my Fatburner Blueprint Signature Program, which I've developed by utilizing my 15 years experience in the health and fitness space. This program is designed specifically for those committed to making serious progress towards our health goals over the next six months. We will focus on sleep, stress, nutrition, meal timing, and building lean muscle. If this sounds like a fit for you, email me at brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. That's brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint.
Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.